0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. In our gospel from Matthew 4, the evangelist tells us Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was hot and dry. And dusty as Jesus made his way from that narrow, fertile strip of land along the Jordan up into the Judean wilderness. Into that place that the Old Testament calls Yeshimon. That means devastation. Does that give you a picture of what the land might have been like? It's a land of sand and broken limestone and rocky shingle. The geological activity of the ages has raised up strata into all sorts of ridges, and they twist here and turn there. And everything in between those ridges is filled with dust and jagged rocks and broken stones and shingles that easily slide out from under your feet. And into that hot and desolate wilderness, Jesus walked at the Spirit's prompting. I expect that when he first set out, he found beauty in the desert. There was beauty in the layers of rock in that ridge over there as it jutted up out of the ground. And looking at that boulder over there, I wonder how long it's been balancing like that. And that first night, the sky was absolutely amazing as the sun set over the rocks and the mountains in the distance. It's like that at first, isn't it, when you go into a place like that. But if you've ever gone hiking in the desert, you know the novelty doesn't last forever. Last week I was watching a video that's made by a, a bike packer I follow. And he was bicycling a loop in the Southern California desert. And I watched as he made his way through a canyon in the Anza Varego Desert. And he started out, and everything was a wonder, and he was admiring everything around him. It was all so beautiful, and he was excited. He's a very upbeat guy. And he was cycling through this canyon. And it was only 20 miles to the other side to get to the paved road to get to where he was spending the night. It should only take a couple hours. And then almost immediately, he got bogged down in deep sand. And for mile after mile after mile, what he thought might take a few hours turned into all day and into the evening. And it was hot, and it was dry, and he was sweaty. And pretty soon the novelty was gone. And even for an upbeat guy, you could tell this wasn't a whole lot of fun. And I knew that feeling because we've hiked in the same anza Borrego desert in almost the same area, and you go out on a hike, and on the way in, it's beautiful, and you stop, and you admire everything. You take pictures. But then on the way out, you're hot, and you're sweaty, and you're dusty, and your feet hurt from walking over rocks, and you're tired, and you're hungry, and you're thirsty, and you just want to get back to the car. And I imagine Jesus felt something like that the further he walked into that wilderness of devastation. Hot, dry, dusty, sweaty, thirsty, hungry. But as he put one foot in front of another and as he wiped the sweat from his face, he thought about his forefathers and he thought about their wilderness trek from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. The Lord, the God of Israel, was about to do something very much like that again a new Exodus. And Jesus knew he was at the center of it. And so he put himself in the place of his people who so badly needed and who so longed for deliverance. And even if nobody else saw him in that wilderness, he was acting out a prophecy repeating the life and story of his people and putting himself in their place. And so I expect he found some spot out in the middle of the wasteland, maybe where he found a little spring of water and in the shade of one of those twisting ridges, maybe there were a few bushes or even a palm tree for a bit of shade. And he arranged some rocks and some scrub to make a a reasonably comfortable place to sit or to lie or to kneel in prayer. And he communed with God and he meditated on the scriptures and he pondered the nature of his ministry which was just beginning and he prayed for wisdom to follow the path his father had set before him to discern where it was leading him and he prayed For the strength and grace to follow it to its end. He was preparing to take the role of Israel up himself. To be what the Lord had called his people to be. And Jesus knew he needed to be faithful in that. For years he had meditated on his own miraculous birth. He would heard how people like Simeon and Anna and even his own mother had seen in him the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. He meditated on the scriptures, and there he saw his messianic calling, and he worked out what he was to do, and even how it would end, and how that end would really be the beginning. And if there was any doubt in his mind, it was driven away in his baptism. Even though he had no need of repentance... In his baptism, he identified with his people. He waded into the Jordan to be baptized by John. And when he came up out of the river, you remember? Heaven opened up. The Spirit descended on him. And the Lord spoke, you are my beloved son. Again, beloved son, that was Israel's title. The title given by the Lord in the Exodus after her baptism in the Red Sea. This acted-out prophecy began there when Jesus walked into the Jordan and then walked back out. So now, like Moses, Jesus seeks the solitude of the wilderness for 40 days and nights, waiting for the Lord to speak once more. But instead, the devil comes to him. But I doubt that Jesus was surprised by that. Because after all, if Israel was tempted in the wilderness... He's got to be tempted in the wilderness too. And so Matthew goes on and he writes, he says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Again, this is how we should expect the story to develop if Jesus is prophetically reenacting the story of his people. They were tempted in the wilderness, and so was he. And the devil leverages his hunger. I wonder how many times during those 40 days, Jesus looked up and saw a rock and said, boy, that rock sure looks like a loaf of bread. And maybe was even tempted himself. The Lord provided manna in the wilderness. Here's the way we're going to do it again. The devil leveraged his hunger. The Lord declared you to be his son. If you believe that's who you really are, satisfy yourself and turn these stones into bread. I know you've been thinking about it. And I think Jesus had spent much of those 40 days and nights contemplating precisely what it meant to be the Son of God. And probably also pondering why the Spirit wanted the Son of God to be so hungry. But Jesus was obedient to embody his people and to follow in their footsteps, being faithful at every step where they had failed. This was the Lord's plan for him. And that was a means by which he would redeem his people. The, the devil's temptation is subtle. He doesn't tempt Jesus to disobey the Spirit overtly. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. Jesus, let's, let, let's go find McDonald's. Let's go to Jerusalem and eat. He tempts Jesus instead. Go ahead, stay in the wilderness. But turn those rocks into bread. Remake the wilderness yourself. And yet Jesus knew that the Spirit had brought him to the wilderness for a reason. And to undermine that, however it was done, was to be unfaithful, to be disobedient. It was to reject his Father's plan. And so he rebukes the devil with the words of Deuteronomy 8.3. Matthew says, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus appeals to the sermon that Moses preached to the Israelites as they were preparing to march into Canaan. Moses said, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you, testing you to know what, is, what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, there was a reason why the Lord allowed the Israelites to be hungry. It demonstrated their faith in his provision. Were his people willing to trust him, even when it meant hardship? The Lord taught them that there is more to life than bread. What good is living today if you miss out on the life of the age to come? And the Israelites had failed that test. They grumbled against Moses. They said they wanted to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. But now, where Israel failed, Jesus passes the test. He trusts his Father to provide where he is led and shows that he knows that obedience to God's call is more important than physical comfort, even than life itself. If he can't endure fasting, how will he ever endure the cross? And brothers and sisters, if you and I can't endure fasting, how can we expect to live sacrificially as Jesus calls us to live? Giving up everything that is not him, And looking forward in faith to to the age to come. Now back to Matthew. The devil tries a second time. He takes a different tack. Matthew says, Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So now the devil tempts Jesus to jump from the highest point in Jerusalem to force God's hand. Angels would deliver him, and all Israel would see him, and in that they would recognize him as the Messiah. What a temptation that must have been. Because during those 40 days of fasting and prayer, Jesus contemplated that rejection was going to be a significant factor in his ministry. A few people would follow him, but Jesus knew he would mostly be rejected by Israel. And eventually that that rejection would culminate in his own death. But now the devil tests him. What if he could prove to everybody in Israel that he was the Messiah? What if he could sidestep all the rejection and go straight to the throne? But Jesus knew that that was not his father's plan. Because if he became king that way, he would be no better than David had been. Sure, he would be king. He would be a godly king. But there would be no means of redemption for his people. There would be no spirit poured out on them to renew their hearts. He would be king, but the Lord's promises to Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets and to David himself, all those prophecies, those promises would be unfulfilled. The nations would know that Israel had a king who worked miracles, but that was never the means by which the Gentiles were to be drawn to Israel's God. That was never the means by which the world would be saved from sin and death. The nations were to be drawn by the display of God's faithfulness to his promises revealed in the Son. It all had to be fulfilled, not just a few words from this prophecy and a few words from that taken out of context. So the devil throws two bits of Psalm 91 at Jesus. It's a psalm about the Lord's protection, and it all sounds good, but again, it's not the whole psalm. It's out of context. Other parts of the psalm qualify God's provision or his rescue for his people. The first two verses of Psalm 91 say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the shelter of the Most High, that's a wonderful place to find yourself. But to live under his protection requires that we first abide in his shadow. He is our refuge and fortress, but we put ourselves in his care as we trust, as we obey him. In verse 14, the Lord says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The devil loves to pluck portions of Scripture out of context in order to twist their meaning, reminding us of God's promises of blessing or care or prosperity while neglecting to remind us or neglecting the parts that call for our need first of faith and for holiness and for obedience and even sometimes for sacrifice and suffering. God's people show their love for him through obedience and sacrifice. Jesus later said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The same goes for Jesus' relationship with his own father. The Lord's blessing would come only as Jesus walked in faithful obedience. God's people show their love for him through obedience. So Jesus rebukes the devil with the words of Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus said to him, again it is written, the whole story, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, where Israel had failed, Jesus is again obedient. Israel had tested the Lord. Jesus instead expresses his trust in the Lord's plan, knowing that only through his rejection will the Lord's promises be fulfilled. So the devil then makes one last attempt at dragging Jesus away from the path to the cross. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Israel, too, was tempted to idolatry in the wilderness and failed the test. And failed and failed and failed and failed and failed failed throughout her history. So Jesus is tempted just as his people were. All the kingdoms of the world will be yours, the devil says. Just submit to me. Jesus and the devil both knew that if the Lord's promises through the prophets were true, Jesus' lordship would not just include Israel, but would extend beyond that to all of creation. Gabriel had announced to Mary, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his king of his kingdom there will be no end. When the father had spoken at Jesus' baptism, he'd spoken words from Psalm 2, where we also read of the great king, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Jesus knew. All of creation was his kingdom. So the devil again offers Jesus, though, a shortcut to that throne, a shortcut, shortcut that bypasses his messianic ministry. Again, Jesus knew that, that what would bring the nations to his throne was the redemption of Israel through his death and resurrection and the display of the Spirit's power in the hearts of his people. In those events... The nations were to see the greatness and the faithfulness of the God of Israel, and they would be drawn to give him glory and to submit themselves in faith to him. That was to be God's means of welcoming the Gentiles into his presence and into his kingdom. That was to be the means of bringing the nations into Jesus' kingdom. But if Jesus followed the devil's shortcut, there would be no kingdom, at least not the sort of eternal kingdom in which all was set to rights, in which God himself was king. The sort of kingdom that Israel had always looked forward to is the age to come. No, the Lord had charged his people in the wilderness saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. See, over and over Israel had failed. Even in the wilderness, while Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron, remember what Aaron did? He led the people, and they they made and worshipped a golden calf. Most of Israel's history was marked by the worship of foreign gods. Yeah, maybe they had the temple and they went and did everything they were supposed to do in terms of worshiping the Lord. But they set up altars to foreign gods around the country and even in the temple itself. But Jesus responds to the devil's temptation with the command God had given through Moses. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Again, where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. He chooses a hard path of obedience that will bring not only kingship, but also redemption. Jesus was destined not only to be the king of the Jews, but the Lord of all creation and the conqueror of sin and death. And for that to happen, evil had to be concentrated all in one place. It had to rise up to its full height. It had to do its worst to Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Messiah. So that God could then raise him from the dead, overturning the false verdict of the people, and announce the vindication of his son. Jesus knew that to restore the life of God to his people, the way to inaugurate the age to come in which everything would be set to rights, he must first let evil do its worst. He knew he had to walk the path of rejection and suffering and death because he knew the scriptures. And he had read the prophets. By his faithfulness, Jesus redeemed those in Israel who were faithful to him. By his faithfulness, Jesus created a new people of God in whom God then poured his spirit. By his faithfulness, Jesus was declared Lord with power and authority. And because of his faithfulness, the nations have seen the faithfulness of Israel's God and now give him glory as they as we submit ourselves to him in faith. And now we, you and I, walk in faithfulness to the glory of God. As Lent puts before us the suffering of Jesus and reminds us that God's life for us came through his submission to death, it reminds us that we, too, have to die to self and embrace that narrow path the way that leads to suffering and rejection in order to know the life of God and of the age to come. It's not easy. We take our first steps down that narrow path as we repent and turn aside from everything that is not Jesus, as we open our hands and let go of everything that is not Him, and then take hold of Him with both our hands in faith, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sins for the life of the Spirit, and for life in God's world one day set to rights. Lent calls us to set aside our distractions so that we might fix our gaze on Jesus, taking up our crosses and following him. St. Paul warned the Corinthians in our epistle today not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. I mean, what a splash of cold water that must have been to the Corinthians because they thought they were doing so well. But Paul rebukes them because they were tolerating sins that even horrified the pagans around them. He rebukes them for tolerating or for abusing spiritual gifts for using those gifts selfishly instead of to edify the church, for allowing the values of pagan culture to twist their understanding of the gospel, for abusing the Lord's Supper, this long and troubling list. Brothers and sisters, fast and pray these next 40 days that the gospel might permeate even deeper into your hearts and minds. Let us submit ourselves to the renewing and regenerating work of the Spirit. Let us not receive the gospel in vain. Instead, may we each day die to self that we might emerge the other side of death into the life of God and truly know his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, for our sake you fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Give us grace so to discipline ourselves that our flesh, being subdued to the Spirit, we may always obey your will and righteousness and true holiness, to the honor and glory of your name. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.